Hey there, and welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations about food and farming. I'm Jared Lumen, the Soil Health Lead for the Sustainable Farming Association, and I'm really excited for today's conversation as it's very timely with fall and the holiday season. We're going to be discussing pastured turkey farming with pasture-based farmer Kathy Zeman. We'll also discuss the other pasture-based meat products that she raises on her farm. It's sure to be fun and make you hungry for Thanksgiving dinner. So with that, we'll move right into our conversation. Thanks so much, Kathy, for joining me today. Oh, Jared, thank you for asking me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah. Why don't you just start uh, with an introduction of yourself and a little bit of an introduction to your farm? Okay. Well, my uh, brother Dominic and I farm this farm. We call it Simple Harvest Farm Organics. Um, our motto is, if it ain't simple, we can't do it. So that's why we like this farm. I like that uh, too. Bought it, yeah. <laughs> we bought it back in 06. Um, and, you know, I'd grown up farming, uh, registered Holsteins, you know, showed cows all over, judged cows all over. So, you know, rich in that, in that environment, but flatland farmers. So I'm not sure flatland farmers should be allowed to buy really hilly land because it takes a different brain set to do this. So, but, but I, in the end, I think this, the, this kind of slopey farm will survive climate change much better than the flatland farms that I was used to. So, um, cause you can capture water, right? On the mm. high side, you can go, the a whole thing about swales and berms kind of work. So, Interesting. Um, so we, because this farm is all highly erodible, you know, that's that technical term that the soil people use. We, sure. I immediately put it all in grass, you know, grass and pasture. And so if you got, you know, that much, we've only got 20 acres, but that's 20 acres of grass. So we grazed, we fenced it all in. My nephew, Jordan, came up and helped put all the fence in. And uh, we graze everything here. So we graze goats and sheep and pigs and uh, ducks and geese and turkeys and broilers and hens and meat rabbit. Wow. (laughs) And well, part of that's also my risk management, right? Um, sure. I, you know, if the African swine fever, knock on wood, ever shows up, I might, it won't take all, you know, it'll take, may take some pigs out, but it won't, you know, take down my whole, my whole farming operation. When yeah. the bird flu went through in, in 15, you know, I, you know, again, I could protect myself from, I mean, we didn't break. And the, as far as I know, there just weren't that many pasture operations that broke. We, I didn't know any. Um, most sure that, just, yeah, I'm not sure I'd ever heard of any either, so. Right. It was just the CAFOs really that broke. So anyway, it's part of my risk management to have a very diverse, right, operation. And I'm organic. So yeah. again, even though I could have a million animals here, because I have different species that I never build up that many diseases, you know, per species. So we rotate a lot because sure. there's not that many diseases that cross over between species. So again, that's part of my risk management and it's part of creating a healthy environment for everything. It's how I protect my yeah. soil, my water, my air. Yeah. Okay. Wow. What? That's awesome. What were all the animals you said you you had quite a list, uh, a mouthful of animals there that you're raising. So on the so we do goats and sheep and uh, we use we we've run cattle before. Like I literally would would milk our own Jersey cows. Sure. Uh, but if that one is a little bit harder for me to rotate there, they don't really fit my operation. So on the ruminant side, it really is sheep and goats. Okay. And then we do pigs. We do pastured pigs. Okay. We bring in, uh, we, to date, we have brought in feeder pigs, but I'm pretty sure we're going to start farrowing. It's hard for me to find high-quality pastured organic feeder pigs that yeah. fit into a pastured system, right? I've heard that. Yeah, I've yeah. heard that can be difficult. Because yeah. you need systems to match up. So when you, if you sure. pull up, they, they just have to match up, and so they don't. So anyway, sure. 
and then on the and then we do meat rabbit and then okay. uh, that's all pastured and then on the poultry side we do duck goose turkey chicken we do broilers and uh hens wow yeah that is that is quite the list and um and how did it when it started when you started your farm well first of all i'm curious like that that choice to put it all in grass the recognition that the slopes were dangerous and that grass would solve that where did that recognition come from especially coming from flatland farming where there's very little pasture and grass where was there a conference a speaker an individual like how did you first come to that realization i'm old i'm old <laughs> and therefore i'm old and therefore, the way that we farmed, I think I was born in the golden age of agriculture. So I was born in 1958. So the way that my, and I come from a family of 12 kids. So dad, right, had a diversified small farm that his children were his unfair advantage. We were brilliant, hard workers, haha. Most of us were brilliant and hardworking. And so, he, you know, he took advantage of that. And we, a lot of us ended up farming. So you can tell he did something right because we love that kind of hard work, whatever. Uh, yeah. that, that all works for us. That's interesting because uh, I know a lot dad, of people don't want to, <laughs> they grow up that way and that's, they go the opposite direction. So we, that's interesting no, too. We, we kind of love it. Um, but awesome. because of that, the way our farm was, it was a little bit hilly, but not really. There's just that one big slope, but we grew up with a lot of dad had outdoor, dad had outdoor pig production. We had cattle on pasture. I mean, as a kid, as a kid, like, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, going out to get the cows early in the morning to bring them into milk, we were always barefoot. And I would literally try to find the cow pies. When cows get up, they poop. That poop is warm. And if you are out there at four in the morning and your feet are freezing, you would literally go walk in that warm poop to warm your feet up. So that is how we grew up. I think in that golden age of agriculture, it sure. was not yet corporate as much. There were not just, there weren't a lot of drugs and chemicals involved yet. I mean, it was, it was still before things kind of boomed and that's how we grew up. So that's, sure. I, I just knew all of that from growing sure. up. And then, and then of course I had to work to get my 20% down. So I always knew I was going to farm. Sure. But yeah. yeah, some, at some point you got to get 20% down to buy your farm. So then, you know, I went and worked professionally to come up with that cash. And then I finally bought my first farm back in 98 or something. And is that the farm you're on today? Nope. This is my third farm. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Sure. Oh, that's my third farm. So that's interesting that that was something that you've always known. Uh, when you started farming and pasture-based farming, you had all this grass, you had all this land. What made you, like, how did you get started with the livestock? And what, what did that look like? Was it one species at a time? Or did you recognize the importance right off the bat of that diversity that it offered you both financially and risk, uh, you know, disease risk? I mean, was that, how did, how did that progression look? It started with Nick's eggs, so the chickens. Started with the laying hens. They were like a 4-H project for my brother, Nick, literally. And like all 4-H projects, they get out of hand quickly, right? They just <laughs> yeah. don't, doesn't ever work. Sure. Um, and they became a business. And we still call them Nick's Eggs. You know, we sell them at uh, Just Food Co-op and, you know, restaurants. Sure. And Nick's Eggs. And then it was goats. I knew, um, I, you know, it was like the poor woman's cow, the goats, right? So I had goats. <laughs> Okay. Um, and I, and I, yeah. So at one point, literally we had 40 goats at the Steele County Fair. So my nephews and nieces could show them that was not wise, of course, but we still did it because it was fun. So there were, we had a lot of goats. Yeah. Okay. And then we finally got that to like, so that was kind of a project, but maybe not all that profitable at that time. Right. Cause we did sure. dairy goods. 
okay. but I even exported, I exported registered uh, son and goats to Mexico. I mean, there was a time there that I know, right? Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> right. So anyway, so then there are goats we did. So we really went from the chickens to the goats. And then we always have had, you know, a handful of, oh, and we do, we do honeybees too. So, you know, we have okay. to pollinate. So we do honeybees. Sure. Sure. And that's why not? Right. One, one right, more thing not? won't hurt. Yeah. Oh, we're doing it. You might as well just go in all in. Yeah. Um, and then, and we always did pigs because we always bought feeder pigs for my dad. Okay. Um, and then the, she oh, I started out with Icelandic sheep. I love Icelandic sheep, but I also had a hard, as it kept going, we had a harder time finding um, shearers and I don't want to shear. Um, now we have Katahdins. We have hair sheep, you know, because they're super worm resistant. Mm -hmm. They're super mm -hmm. on patch. They get fat looking at grass. So um, I really like our Katahdins. And yeah. then, and then I think everything, and then the rest of the poultry just kind of evolved. I mean, once you do chickens, you might as well do duck and goose and turkey. So sure, sure, interesting. Yeah, so it kind of started with those eggs off the bat, but then you moved more toward before going more into the the birds. You kind of started off with more of the the ruminants and the larger right. livestock. And well, I suppose more, they yeah, can cover more land quicker too, as the as opposed to the chickens would have taken a lot more marketing maybe to build up right. to justify enough birds to cover those that land base right because right. at some point and i again i learned early on to get to scale to get to bulk right mm -hmm. so i learned early on that you know bagged feed costs you 33 percent more so you have to get to enough numbers to get to bulk as fast as you if you're going to be unless sure. you're a hot but if you're a business you got to get there fast right sure yeah the other thing that worried me i i struggled with even under a certified organic operation i i didn't always like my fertilizer choices Mm -hmm. So I wanted to be able to raise enough of my own manure, right? So that mm -hmm. I could pretty much fire my fertilizer man, right? So, yeah. is, so that's why we have now, we create enough manure. So we, you know, we, we do a fairly decent job at that. I, again, it's back to that. It's back to my risk management and it's back to being kind of resilient and self-sustaining. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's awesome. And you know, I've, I've always thought the sustainable farming association, you know, sustainable is more, it's, it's three kind of things the way I see it anyway. It's, it's financial sustainability and the ability to make a living off of something for into perpetuity. It's right. the ability to build your soil and for your soil to last in perpetuity. And, and then it's also having a decent lifestyle. And so with all those animals and all that livestock, uh, do you, how is your lifestyle kind of, I mean, you enjoy what you do, but is it, uh, is it overwhelming at times? How does that all work? Um, I love livestock, right? Sure. I have worked, I work professionally. So yeah, I'm working mm -hmm. for other people, correct? Sure. Yep. But as a farmer, I work for myself. Yes. And so my, my work now aligns perfectly with my values and my principles, right? And so yes. Again, the, the downside of that is if I screw up, it's me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> nobody, mm -hmm. right? There's nobody else to really, yeah. um, to really yell or blame. So, yeah. uh, and I get to learn, I get to do everything. Like, so I don't, um, so I like that part, right? Like sure. I like having to learn all of these skills that I mm -hmm. might not have. If you have, yeah, anyway, I, and, but I grew up with livestock. So I grew up milking cows. So I know that, you know, when there, when we were growing up, if there was a wedding, somebody had the milk. If there was a funeral, somebody yeah. had the milk. So, yeah. you know, that, that part yep. was normal. I don't, Sure. we're only on this planet for a, uh, you know, hundred years and you might only have a 60, 70, 80 good thinking functional years. And I'm going to enjoy what I do, you know, every year if I can. And so I, yeah, I like my livestock. Yeah. 
And I use it as an excuse to get out of things I don't want to do. So that <laughs> Hey, that is a perk. I've never looked at it that way. Wow. That's <laughs> insightful. That's awesome. It's a standing joke in our family. Whenever dad didn't want to do anything, he would say, I got to grind feed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. That's right. funny. Now I, I can't use that because everyone who hear, anyone who hears you say that now will know it's an excuse. I know, right? Podcast. Yeah. You're busted. Yeah, I, I just tell people, I got to go grind feed. We there don't even have go. a grinder. We don't have a grinder. But <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. That is awesome. I love it. Well, I can totally appreciate loving what you do. And, you know, I mean, the old cliche is if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. But right. you know, after working my, my day job, sometimes it's refreshing and rejuvenating to get outside and, and work with the livestock and on the land. So it's cool to hear you talk about that. Like the one thing that I wouldn't do, like people say, oh, we need, we need a weekend off. We're going to go camping. No, I will go glamping, but I will not go camping <laughs> because I work in that all the time. Yeah, yeah, the last yeah. thing I want to do is go someplace that's got bugs and it's hot and you're sweating. No, not doing that. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, moving on a little bit to more kind of narrowing in on the turkeys, kind of our, our animal of the hour, our, uh, you know, our highlighted animal of the hour here. Um, what does that specifically look like? That is something that I have no experience with is seeing pastured turkeys. Um, what is the process, the day-to-day -day chores, uh, and, and how does that look? So early on, we free-ranged both our broilers and turkeys, and that, that worked okay. The one thing that uh, you have to, you're also then, so I grew up with registered Holsteins and you know, a lot of, lot of production awards, but we were married to the feed cart. So if you have to be at the feed cart 12 times a day, that's, you know, that's take some commitment. And I, and with pastured poultry, if you're going to free range them, poultry member get taken out at night by wild kitty cats, wild raccoons, owls, you name it, there's predators. So then sure. you've got to time it. You've got to be home at dusk, 15 minutes before dusk to push them in, to keep them safe. Well, then all of a sudden I'm like, I don't want to be married to that hoop so i don't want to do that so right we do all we do cattle panel hoops they're eight by 12 and we move them every day so they are on fresh grass every day okay. and that is all of our poultry so then so it's the best of everything i protect them from predators we have not lost anything to a predator wow uh, since we've been into the hoops they're on we you know we have no coccidiosis because you're always moving to fresh grass once or twice a day we do not crowd them in there. We hang the feed and the grit so that helps hold it down in case of wind, the sure. water. I mean, and we don't we don't pull them, we push them because I have a skid loader and she does a lot of work for me. The okay. skid loader bucket touches the front and I push it. So uh -huh. we never have to worry about running over any of the birds because they're afraid of that loud skid loader. They're running away yes. from you, right? So we push with the skid loader. Oh, yeah. So the skid loader always works on my farm because <laughs> she does a lot of work. So that sure. is the one piece of machinery that um, my neighbor, my good one is in charge of making sure that the skid loader works because I'm not a mechanic. Oh my goodness. Not at all. No. Okay. Okay. Well, you had a little experience with free ranging. And so I'm going to ask you this question and, and maybe you've heard it, but it's something I've always heard for years and I don't know if it's true. Is it true that in a rainstorm, a turkey will can <laughs> drown if it, it looks up and it swallows rain and it drowns. I've heard that said, and I've never, I've always wondered if it's true. I have never lost a turkey. I have lost broilers. Okay, interesting. Cornish, the Cornish rock, yeah. So it kind of depends on where they're located. And you'll see this on other, you'll hear it and see it from other pastured people. Um, I just saw another on Facebook, because of course, if it's not on Facebook, it didn't happen. 
um, they, you can get, if they, if you have flash flooding or any kind of thing like that, even in hoops, they will, I've lost some in that case, but okay. I've never lost a turkey. Sure. We've had turkeys when I let them free range, the heritage birds fly up into your trees. Oh, they have been blown out and one of them impaled themselves on another tree. So there, right. Yeah. Um, so that can happen. Okay. Uh, so and they and and so again, if you think that through, uh, the turkeys at dusk like to perch in your trees. So when sure. you have to go catch them in order to bring them to the Denison meat locker to get butchered, you got to get them before they're thirty feet up in the air. Okay, yeah. and you yeah. can imagine that doesn't always go smoothly. Sure. So it, you have to maintain a sense of humor when you're doing those things. <laughs> and that I guess another advantage of your hoop style because they can't exactly. find the trees. So that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Um, the, the land that you've, and it sounds like you're managing all your poultry, so this may kind of apply to all of them, but if there's anything unique to turkeys, I'd be interested to hear that too. But the land that they've been raised on, what benefits or or changes have you seen on the actual landscape and in the soils and in the plant growth that you've run these, I don't know if you call them turkey tractors or chicken tractors, uh, that you've, that you've run those over. So it doesn't matter whether it's the chickens, the ducks, the geese, the turkeys, although the geese we did kind of let free range because they are, they are kind of predator, they are predator control. They're mean. They're, they pick on all my nieces. They're, they're mean. Sure. Um, But anyway, my nieces used to like me up until the geese took them on. But (laughs) I digress. Um, So what I, what I have found out as we, you know, and in a season, we probably only repeat a track. You know, the, we literally, they're tracks. You loop, you know, they go down and they come back. Mm -hmm. you move them 12 feet you know every day or 24 feet every day depending on what the weather gives you Um, the grass grows back thicker okay is that amazing so if you think about it if you don't move them fast enough then you over because they're pooping right so they're Mm -hmm. adding manure to the soil so if you let them sit too long like you don't move them then that over fertilizes that but Mm -hmm. but i our land the where we've had the tracks the we have much healthier grass Okay. So it comes back thicker. Um, and it, and we, the only, um, and we get rid of the weeds faster. Um, have I seen that like one particular grass or legume comes back more? No, not necessarily. I would tell you we have more grass, but that makes sense, right? Anytime that you, if you do not really manage your pasture super well, grass will outcompete your legumes. So that's probably true. But in my case, I don't care over there on that side. Okay. And are you rotating where is impacted by birds and then where is impacted by your ruminants and where is impacted by your monogastrics, your pigs, um, every year or throughout the season? Or is it uh, the kind of same year or year after year? Uh, it's more, well, the sheep, <laughs> the goats are separate because you have, we, in order for me to contain our goats, it's cattle panels because goats yeah. are goats. I've always heard, yeah, cattle are pretty easy. You can keep them in with a wire. Sheep will find a way out if it's there, but goats seek. They live to find a way out. So that makes sense. Good luck on the goats, yeah. Yeah. So the goats have got, we rotate goats between three pastures and they're all cattle panel. We could run hot wire, but we have too many children at around or, you know, with school tours. And so no one, they're always not smart enough not to touch that wire, right? And sure. Or someone dares them to touch the wire or, you know, whatever. So that doesn't work. So that's cattle pounds, goats. But the sheep, we do let the sheep, um, we can, the, the farm is fenced in. So I put a cattle panel over the driveway. And then I literally let the sheep run all over the farm at least okay. three or four times during the season. That yeah. helps. 
And then the poultry, uh, they go through two different sections. And then one section is usually they don't get on at all one year. Okay. So we rotate year on and year off. Sure. Pigs are in their own pasture. We don't let the pigs up where they are. But the sheep and the poultry, can, can they do a pretty good job of intermixing. Yeah. And that's a nice thing about your, uh, your cattle panel hoop structure is that's movable yep. and portable right. and that you can get to where you need the where you need that animal impact. So that's awesome. And then our rabbits, we, again, we don't like to mow lawn because that's a waste of my time. So our rabbits are more or less wherever there's grass or lawn. And they are, they will look a lot more like the, the flat, the flat tractors. We really, we move those. Those are four foot by four foot slatted. They're four foot by four foot, two foot high. And then the bottom is slatted. And we literally pull those ahead every single day too. Twice okay. Again. Okay. Huh. Well, that's, that's fascinating because that is something that I've never seen as pastured rabbits. So that, that's awesome. We did, we tried free ranging them, but they've got a great way of, you know, making those, uh, what do they call them? Tunnels, not tunnels. Oh. Burrows, burrows. Sure, sure. Watership down, that book comes to mind. Anyway, they got out. They would have, oh my goodness, they're, you know, 40 feet out of the fence. We've got rabbits coming out of the ground. We're like, okay, that didn't work well. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we put them, we put them in the slatted, the slatted sure. So you direct market all of this, right? Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Um, what have you, have you heard or yourself uh, or heard from your customers anything about the pastured turkey that they are just, you know, they, they compare it to the store-bought stuff or something and, and there's any yeah. difference or what have you heard from them? Um, we, our, our customer, well, so we do two different birds, right? We do the broad-breasted whites. Mm -hmm. And so that you can bring them in in late July and then because they grow fast. And then we bring in heritage ones. We bring in bourbon reds in last part of April. The heritage breeds need at least 26 weeks in order for them to get mature enough to lay on that last layer of fat. Wow. So, and, but they're spendy. I'm not, those are spendy birds. Um, sure. So, um, so we, so it's my balance in the world. We bring in the broad breasted whites. We price them a little bit higher than we should because it helps offset the price of our, of our heritage. And we keep, we try to keep that down. So that more people can afford them. Because, I mean, it's like the niche of the niche, right? These are certified yeah. organic, pastured, heritage. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> but if we don't keep that breed going, right, then we're all back down to just a handful of genetics. And that is a bad idea. So we're mm -hmm. willing, our customers are willing to invest in heritage birds. I call it an investment because they're, they they're more spending than anything, I, anything else that we raise. Sure. But um, I would tell you that heritage, the heritage birds have a, have a um, I just call it a more turkey taste. Okay. Right. They're, they just have more turkey. So not gamey, but they, they've got sure. a more intense turkey flavor um, and the fact that they're fresh. So there is a difference between fresh and then thawed which is, which I didn't believe either until we try it and like, oh, they're, they're really, yes. And then our broad-breasted whites um, do not, and I don't know if it's because they're pastured and organic and, or they're because they've never been frozen. But again, our, our customers say they just have a fresher taste. And I don't know what that means, a more moist taste. A lot of our customers don't brine them. I mean, they just, we, they don't have to. So I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I have never had a heritage bird. And so I may have to try that sometime. It sounds interesting. I would love to. Um, but overall, it sounds like customers are very happy with it. And that fresh, that fresh, never frozen, I, you know, I suppose that would make a difference. Not something yeah, I've considered. 
You, yeah. you would you would imagine. I mean, that chemically, scientifically, you'd say, oh yeah, on the chemical side, if you have you frozen that that protein, right, and then you mm -hmm. thought that should have something different, both texture and taste, than just a hundred percent fresh. So sure. Uh, yeah. And then again, and it's so much fun too. People come, you know, a couple of days before Thanksgiving. People have driven two hours in a blizzard to pick up their turkey, and I thought they were crazy, and they thought they were crazy. But <laughs> it is, it, and you know, you because in November, usually Minnesota is beautiful already, right? And so, if you're gonna come to you know Grandma's house to pick up your turkey to go cook it for everybody, that's yeah, it's, it's yeah. kind of fun that 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 those two or three days of having you know 50, 50, 60 some people here to pick up turkeys is. And again, I try to keep my numbers manageable, right? Because I, sure. I could have millions of turkeys, but then that would that would not do well on this land, right? Because I, yeah. I want to have I want to have um, appropriate numbers for the scale for the land that I've got. That makes sense, absolutely. Okay, um, anything on the turkeys that I've missed? Something that's unique to the how you raise your pastured turkeys, how they taste? Anything that I've missed on them? Turkeys will eat uh, their weight and grit. Really. Oh my gosh, and turkeys, grit, yeah. Grit for, for any listener, that's literally just like rock, right? Or granite or something, yeah, and, and it helps them digest feed. Right, to be more efficient. And turkeys, if you want to have fun with turkeys, you can finish them off on wheat alone. Really? So turkeys do really well with wheat, which again, think of that. Think how we do want more diversity on our soil and on our land. And mm -hmm. so if we can work wheat into our rations, then we encourage more farmers to grow more wheat that puts more diversity on our soil, blah, 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 right? So no, I'm all reason, turkeys. Yeah. Another reason we should do turkeys. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, changing gears a little bit out of the turkey realm, um, you talked a little bit about how you have an off-farm job. Uh, tell me about that. Well, it's actually an on-farm job. So I do, I'm the executive director for the Minnesota Farmers Market Association, and I work out of my farm office. Okay. And this started. This started back in uh, 2012. I was uh, I was selling, you know, direct marketing and selling at farmers markets and and I, you know, some of the grocery stores. And but I kept running into like it appeared to be rules and regulations that were being interpreted differently between who said it or where you sold, and that kind of was, you know, it, to me it should have been consistent. And so. At the same time, Minnesota Farmers Market Association put an ad out that said, hey, we want somebody to kind of manage our, kind of manage our association. And I said, well, pick me, but only if you're okay if we also do some public policy. Otherwise, in six months, you'll fire me and I'll fire you, and that won't be any fun. We'll just have wasted six months. So that the board at that time said, yeah, we should do this. And so it's been a wonderful eight years. It is, uh, sure. you know, I've worked with the, the boards that, you know, you have different people come on and go off and the, the farmer's market world is a wonderful, loving, supportive, right? Boots on the ground, resilient. It's where you, it's where community eats and meets, right? And um, so we've, we've had, we've done good work and we have, we have managed to do uh, a lot of public policy. We managed to get some laws passed that make it easier and faster and better for local farmers to sell direct. So I think that works. And we have a lot of work ahead of us. If COVID-19 did nothing else, it should have slapped us all on the head, right? To let us know how fragile that corporate world is on the food side, because the people that were doing pretty well, the, the people that were on the, the, we do the direct marketing and the local food, um, that held, that held really well. We, we mm -hmm. you know, there's most CSAs are sold out. Farmers market vendors are doing really well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, 
Customer counts are down, but that's because we told customers, don't all come, you know, send one person. We don't need 100 people there because that's not going to work well sure. for COVID-19. Uh, meat, meat producers, egg producers, everybody is pretty much at capacity selling out. I mean, we need more meat processing plants, obviously, but yes. we needed them before COVID-19. And we certainly shone a light on that with COVID-19. So, Yeah. Yeah, well, I know it has been, you know, there's been a lot of challenges with it, but my wife and I, we direct market meat as well in the Twin Cities. And if one silver lining or blessing has come out of it is, it is demand to local food. So I'm really excited about, I'm hoping that this really makes a change and that, and that people really start to consider local uh, and that it becomes a bigger piece of the industry. Um, but what? Well, I, I think they will. Because like even like the Minnesota, you know, MDA's Commissioner of Agriculture, Tom Peterson, and uh, MDA has done a good job of, of uh, really looking at local food and, and putting out his, you know, they've, they've got some flexibility and some grants. And so they've got grants to enough, uh, as much as they possibly could. So I, I do believe this will hold, right? Good. Yeah. What is the importance of a farmer's market? Uh, why, why is it so valuable for consumers and for farmers? Well, you've got your shortest mileage, right? Your your food dollar, your food miles are tiny. You got you got you, most of us like I'm seven mi minutes away, right? So that's where our food will come from to a farmer's market. So you've got very short transportation, um, and from a and you're buying from your neighbors to your neighbors. So you've got those dollars going around, right? Circulating because, in the community, sure. Right? Yep, yeah, that's all stays uh, local there. From a vendor side. It's a really good uh, incubator, a business incubator, right? So before you'd have to, uh, you know, put in a lot of numbers, whatever it is, you could try out something at a farmer's market, see what does, what sells, what doesn't sell, what our customers taste, what, whatever. And, and it just gives you so much flexibility. Now, having said that, because, you know, I'm a good friend of Ryan Pesh with the University of Minnesota Extension, Ryan, Ryan's mantra is you need many, you'd need more than one sales channel. So I would, you know, even though farmer's markets are wonderful, they're your storefront, that's where you see people, you build your customer base, you should probably also have a couple of wholesale, you should do a lot, some direct, right? So you got, so you never have all of your eggs, ha ha ha, in one basket. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And that, you know, that's interesting because that's another perspective that I've always, I've always liked about direct market farming, whether that's through a farmer's market or direct off the farm, is that you do have kind of naturally built in several different outlets, right. as opposed right. to one wholesale or one, you know, selling everything to the local elevator. Every customer, you lose 10% of your customers, you still have a lot. If you lose one of your only outlet, you're in a lot of trouble. And so that's uh fascinating point. Well, think of the farmers that sold 90% to restaurants this year, right? So again, that less about having yeah. a varied sales channel. And that's the difference between direct marketing and commodity farmers. If you sell soybean, you sell soybean, it's, it's a widget, right? You're going to sell the same, you're going to sell like everybody else, but a direct farmer has that ability. She can, you know, she's got, she builds in normal risk management by having mm -hmm. that varied sales channel. Sure. Sure. Well, what, are so like if you had one farmer you know we'll just say 25 year old jason or jessica walks up to you and says i want to get into farming i love what you're doing what would be your words of wisdom you've been doing this for a while you built an incredible farm system that's diverse um what would you how how would you instruct them or what would you encourage them to do to get started ha i give this lecture all the time even <laughs> if i'm not asked even if i'm not asking <laughs> So awesome. 
I always, when, you know, everybody falls in love with the romantic part of farming, right? We all, you know, we never think about the blizzards, the frozen waters, the droughts, the floods. We think about, oh, look how pretty those turkeys look in the trees. Okay, yeah. so, so I always recommend to farmers that, have they done their market analysis? Is there room in the market for what they want to do? So if we already have 500 CSAs in this 100 you know, miles square, do we need another produce CSA? Maybe they want to do an herb one or a flower one or a meat one. I mean, right? So you really have to do the very first thing. And I know that sounds weird, but remember, I got a business background. But you need to do a market analysis because otherwise all you're choosing to do is put other farmers out of business. And to me, that is not what we do in, in farmer's market world. We build community, right? We build resilient community. So do sure. your market analysis and then you've got to do what you love, right? So if you don't like gardening, if you hate weeding, probably you're not going to garden. You're going to do something. I hate weeding. I, we put hay down everywhere. We mulch. Because if I weed more than twice a year, I'm ugh. so I don't want to do that. Um, so we don't, we don't, we actually buy our vegetable CSA from you know our neighbor Sogan Valley. So I'm we oh we, sure we do some perennials, but we're not going to do we're not going to do that weeding. Yeah. So that's what I tell them. You, you got to start and, and and then the harder one, I would recommend that they build their business plan on their values. So what is I that? think yeah, tell me yeah. So I think too many times people say this is how I'm going to make money. This is how I can make money. So I'm going to, this is my value set. So what I did at some point, what I kept doing more research, because I didn't start, we, there really, there was no certified organic feed around. We started, you know, there was no certified organic farmers in our, I was the first one in, right? So, and then I helped do paperwork to get other people in because it, it makes it, it's pretty lonely. Otherwise, if you're the only one doing it. And so like right now we've got six or seven, no, there's 10 of us, I think now that, that together place feed orders because our certified organic grain comes from feeds comes from Wisconsin. So if we all share in that transportation cost, like we regroup our orders. So the truck comes across with a couple of us. So we, you know, that way we share that transportation. So, um, but I, I, early on, I knew that I wanted to be organic. I did not want to use, I did not want to use chemicals on our soil. We grew up that way. Dad never used chemicals on our soil. Well, of course not. He had 12 kids that could go out there and pull weeds. Okay, I get that. We were the last dairy farm to put in a, a step saver. We, Dad didn't put a pipeline in because he had. we did surge buckets, right? Because we had a workforce to do that. So I kind of get that part of it. But early on, I, so I, we grew up with all of that stuff. So I didn't want to have a lot of chemicals on my land because I saw the, how that, it was like, you know, soils like on meth, it's on crack. And we didn't, I didn't need, growing up, we did not need a lot of drugs to raise our livestock because we did it right even back then. I mean, I remember tr uh, treating scours with egg, sugar, right? The old electrolyte, right? It was just this crazy yeah. thing that grandma probably came up with. So, <laughs> and it worked, right? Because we never had a million calves. We had the appropriate number of calves for, and we sure. clean, anyway. So I knew that. So I said, okay, this is the value set and I will make my business work. So I said, we are going to be 100% organic. I'm not blinking. Okay. You bring in hundred percent organic inputs. Your price point is going to be high -er than not. And then I build my business plan from that. So I never made an excuse and I never said, well, I didn't want to compromise on my values. So mm -hmm. I didn't. Yeah. Not, I'm not saying it's easy, and, but, no. it's, it's, but I like it. I like it. And I imagine your customers will learn to love and respect that too, and that you are sticking to your values and, and they know when they're coming to you, they're going to get a certain consistent product because that's just what you do. 
And the downside, Jared, is that uh, my price point is not cheapest, right? Mm -hmm. And therefore, uh, where does that put people that don't have a lot of money to spend on food? So on the backside, we donate. Like there, we find ways to donate food to people. A little bit tricky on my meat side because again, I use a custom exempt plant. So donate or sell, but if it's private, I can do it. So that's how we make the world work because otherwise we're out of balance, right? Otherwise, the only people that get my good food are people with a lot of money. Mm. Ooh, that hurts, right? So, yeah. Well, that's interesting too because it does cost more, but it's kind of interesting when you put it in comparison. I've always thought that when you look at it in comparison to what a lot of folks will spend on a lot of stuff, that it's really not that high. It's all values. And when we direct market, a lot of our customers they're not necessarily that we have some high earning customers, sure, and that's great. Um, But we also have a lot of not high earning customers and they just value the quality of their food. And and that's maybe a perspective that it would be uh, awesome if we could shift a perspective over a nation of, you know, valuing where their food comes from. Right. But I also love... Yeah, when I tell people when they buy from us, they're really protecting these 20 acres, right? This Mm -hmm. is this little 20 acres on this planet are going to be no soil erosion, no water pollution. We're not building antibiotic resistant bacteria. That's what they're supporting when they buy from Simple Harvest. Sure. And I also love that uh, importance and that that focus on charity, not charity, well, just giving back, recognizing what you've been given and being willing to contribute back. I think that's really important. So thank you for that. Is there anything else that I haven't covered that I haven't shared or that you're working on that you'd like to take this opportunity to share. Well, you really you just segued into it. So, you know, I'm the, I love the land that I get to take, take care of. Right. But I also know that this land was stolen from right from our native Americans. Mm-hmm. So part of my plan when, when I, when this farm, this farm, this farm will, I'm hoping to make sure, and I've got my little sister Kateri, she's going to take care of it and, you know, in my will you know, I want to make sure this farm goes back to a Native American female farmer, the people that we stole this land from, right? Um, you know, the election of 2016, George Floyd's murder, and then COVID-19. And I, I just, I began, once you see it, you can't unsee it. But I, I serve on a lot of state committees, you know, for local food. And all, everybody on there are white people. We, we do have a fair amount of women, but not a lot of BIPOC farmers at all, or BIPOC food makers. And that, that, that bothers me a lot. Like I, in, in the US, you know, white males have all the privilege, white females are next, then men of color, and then women of color at the bottom. And so I, I, I sit in that second seat of privilege and I'm willing you know, to invest some of my privilege to make sure that we get BIPOC food farmers and food makers at the committees where, where law is set and policy is set. So. There is a whole bunch of us now looking at this uh, in more, you know, in Minnesota and Wisconsin, that we will we're going to identify the committees that we have no other voices on that we just it's only white people. So we're going to say, okay, here are the, those committees that we need to get BIPOC people on. Where are our BIPOC people? And then let's find them and help identify them and um, have them come and you know work on these these leadership committees. And then some we're going to come up with this chunk of money because. And just think of it, Jared, we're, one time that really made an, uh, an impression on me, when I read about the one family that was going to cost them $1,000 to attend the Moses Organic Farming Conference, because it 
the, the registration, and then their daycare for their kids. If we do not provide daycare for our young farmers, how do they get to these things? Are we really just only setting policy and having conferences for old white people? Okay, look around. That's what you see a lot of times. And that's not good for agriculture. It's not good for how we're, we're creating food in this planet. So we're also going to come up with money so that we can get these BIPOC people to help us. But we may, we'll, we'll pay them just, you know, to, to sit at these committees. Because you know some of these committee meetings can be long and boring, at least sometimes, not all of them. But if it's a four-hour meeting, then we can pay them. We'll pay them mileage. And so we're trying to identify where we need them, and then we identify who they are, and then if we've got money to help them do it. So like, for instance, the legislature told the MDA they have to have the Emerging Farmers Task Force or Emerging Farmers Working Group. No money came with that. So do we really expect all of our emerging farmers to volunteer? They're trying to run farms. They're beginning farmers. As a beginning farmer, do you have 20 hours, you know, every month to volunteer to sit at committees? No, you're trying to make your farm work. So we're going to try to come up with money that every place that we need to see more of our emerging farmers, our BIPOC farmers are, oh yeah, the USDA calls us socially disadvantaged farmers. <laughs> there's, there's all these lovely terms for everybody, you know, that's not that traditional white male. We're going to try to identify where the gaps are, who they are, and then help get some money to make sure they can serve. And then we have all the voices at the table. They will have all the people at the table. And then we can make equitable and just decisions for everyone and not just some of us. Wow. Well, thank you so much for that, that work and all of the stuff you're doing. You really have a full plate, it sounds like, to keep you... Uh, to keep you really busy between that goal as well as your your job and what you're doing for farmers in the Minnesota Farmers Market Association, as well as what you're doing on your farm. Um, thank you. That's that's awesome. And that's really incredible. If there was somebody out there who wanted to reach out to you specifically or, or learn more about what you're doing, or maybe, uh, you know, purchase some meat from you, uh, how would you like them to reach out to you? Or where should they go to find information? I used to tell people to email me, but now I've got 3,000 unanswered emails. So that's not working that right, that great right now. Sure, um, they sure. can call, they can email. I've got a website, right? So it doesn't really matter. I, okay. So Simple Harvest Farm Organics is a website, Minnesota Farmers Market. It'll all come to me. So they email, okay. phone. Yes, awesome. Well, thanks so much, Kathy. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate your time and I love what you're doing. Uh, Jared, thank you. I'm glad to do this podcast. And thanks, it was fun talking. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. We believe that agriculture, done well, heals. For more resources or to tap into the Farmer to Farmer Network, visit us at sfa-mn.org.